Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning, the final from Progressive Field in Cleveland. Oh boy, it was a wild one. It's the Indians 2, the Kansas City Royals 1. I'm Davey Barris, lifelong Cleveland baseball fan, and I want to talk about the actual game on the field, the thing I enjoy watching baseball being played. And man, for a 2-1 to game, do we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, it was an absolute slugfest between usually when you say slugfest you're talking about the offenses this time it was a slugfest between brad keller and tristan mckenzie two pitchers that were struggling and two pitchers that were absolutely dominant last night uh and then and then it's the indians slugging their way to victory let's just get into it walk off home run in the ninth inning bobby bradley this time comes up as the hero. Let's go to the matchup here. It is the lead-off batter of the ninth inning. I feel like we're going to walk backwards uh, through this game. And uh, it was the fourth pitch of the at-bat. Throws him a fastball, misses way away. Throws him a fastball, high swinging strike. Throws him a fastball inside that he fouls off. And you know that Salvador Perez was set up down and away for a slider. He wanted a slider that broke across the zone and buried itself out of the zone. Well, instead, he hung the slider slider right down the pipe. And we saw Bobby Braley do that, I believe, on his last home run. He was down in the count. They tried to throw him a breaking ball away, and they left it spinning in the middle of the plate. He hits it 108.3 miles per hour, 20-degree launch angle, 394 and an 890 expected batting average to those seats right in front of the Indians bullpen. Again, another great catch by someone out there. I mean, the the fielding percentage for the fans that are sitting in that section is unbelievable. Uh, and it's a walk-off home run and a party at Progressive Field. Now, how did we get in this situation, right? What led up to this incredible situation? And it was a moment. It was an absolute moment. I was down. Uh, I was down in the flats last night. That's right. If it's been a long time since you've been to Cleveland, the flats are the place to be again. The flats are nice. The East Bank of the Flats are brand new. Uh, if you're one of those people that left Cleveland in the '80s and '90s when the flats were not the place to hang out, uh, and if you're not from Cleveland, the flats are just a cool spot of bars and restaurants right on the Cuyahoga River, right at the mouth of the river. Um, yeah, it's just a place to hang. Uh, and in the 80s and 90s, oh boy, was it a party. So anyways, it was a party again last night. That's the transition there. Uh, you know, I'm sitting there. I positioned myself perfectly at a table so that I could see the game at the bar. And uh, everybody, I think, was holding their breath in the bar on that pitch. And we all let out a cheer uh, when that ball sailed out. So it was a great ending, a great party in Cleveland last night. Okay. So how do we get to that moment? How do we get to the heroics of Bobby Bradley? Um, Well, both pitchers are absolutely dominant for seven-plus innings. Tristan McKenzie goes seven innings, gives up one hit in his return to the majors. No runs, one walk, which would then turn into a double play. Nine strikeouts on 85 pitches. To see McKenzie go that deep in the game, we haven't had a starter go that deep in a game in like a month. It's ridiculous. Um, it's been insane how we haven't had a quality start. That's the first quality start in so long. And then Brad Keller on the other side, he goes seven and two thirds. He gives up, uh, 
four hits, go one run uh, early in the game, four walks, which actually end up costing him, and then nine strikeouts for him as well. So when I say they were trading blows, they were absolutely trading blows. And let's go over to the Illustrator page. Let's see what they were doing. And for Keller, it was the slider. Man, he threw a ton of sliders. And for McKenzie, it was the fastball. He was pounding the zone with that fastball, throwing the fastball up, getting the slider to sweep across the zone, dropping the bottom out of the curveball. Both pitchers were just absolutely locked in last night. And uh, if we go to the player breakdowns, I'm surprised the CSW on the slider isn't higher. It's only a 26%. But he did get 10 whiffs on 31 swings and 12 fouls. So he was very effective with that slider, even if the CSW numbers don't play out that way. Uh, The sinker was his best pitch. His CSW overall in the day was only 25%. If we go down to Tristan McKenzie, it was only a 28% total on the day uh, because the curveball, he wasn't getting much with the curveball. He only got one whiff, no called strikes on the curveball, three foul balls. So really only four strikes called on 15 curveballs. But the slider was very effective for him as an out pitch, as a chase pitch. Eight swings, four whiffs on that slider, three called strikes. It's good for a 44% CSW. And then the fastball, like I said, he was pounding the strike zone with it. He got 33 swings, seven whiffs, which is all right. A lot of those on the outside edge. Nine called strikes on the fastball, but 15 foul balls. That helps. That helps improve the look of your fastball at the end of the day. Only 11 of 54 fastballs were put in play. So it's good for a 30% CSW on that pitch, a 28% CSW overall. But let's dive deeper into the numbers for these two pitchers because what, what, what was different about this for Tristan McKenzie? What, what possibly statistically stood out for Tristan McKenzie that we can look at and say, yes, that is why. That is why he was so dominant last night and why he had struggled all season. Well, the most obvious one is the walks. I mean, his walk rate had been insane all season. He was averaging 7.3 walks per nine innings. 7.3 walks per nine innings. Well, last night, he only gives up one walk. One walk, which I believe was in that seventh inning, and I believe got erased by a double play. Let's double check it here. Yep, he walks. Oh, no, Santana reached on a fielding error. Uh, and then got the double play to get out of it. So where was the walk? The walk ended up causing no problem at all. The walk was in the third inning where he got into a little bit of trouble. Uh, Taylor, uh, after Soler was called out on strikes in the third, Taylor singles on a sharp ground ball to left fielder Oscar Mercado. So both the hit and the walk come in the same inning because then he walks Nicky Lopez, the nine hitter, brings up Whit Merrifield, who's killed the Indians, and... Uh, Gets him to fly out to right fielder Daniel Johnson, and then Benetendi grounds out to get out of it. So the third inning is probably his toughest inning, right? You think maybe the third inning is the inning he's going to fall apart. He finally walks somebody. It's the last hitter in the lineup. It turns the lineup over. Instead, he's able to lock it down. One walk. That is obviously, he had not done that the entire season. He had at least thrown double, not double digit, but crooked number walks. All season. Uh, a couple of twos sprinkle in there. Some fours, some fives. Uh, five walks in a game is the most he's given up so far in his start 
against Minnesota um, back in May. So yeah, so limiting those walks. What else? What else can we look at here? Ground ball percentage. Let's go over to the batted ball numbers here on Fangraphs. And by far the most ground balls he has, I wouldn't say given up, I'd say delivered uh, in a start this season. He was up at 61.5%. Two starts ago against the White Sox. This is back on May 31st. He was at 55 Next highest is 40% against Detroit. I mean, he really, really had not been giving up a lot of fly balls. Giving up a lot of ground balls. He had been giving up a lot of fly balls. So he really limits the number of fly balls. 15.4% fly ball percentage. By far his lowest of the season. Ground ball percentage skyrockets. And it turns into outs. That is beautiful right there. Even though he gave up some hard contact. Which is fine. He gave up a lot of medium contact. A lot of hard contact. A sharp ground ball ain't a bad thing. A sharp ground ball right to Ahmed, right to Jose, right to Cesar, not a bad thing. We can work with that. We want that. All right, let's check out some other numbers here. The pitch type, uh, his pitch mix seemed about the same. He threw 63.5% fastballs, 18.8% sliders, 17.6% curveballs. He eased off the curveball a little bit from his last few starts. And obviously, he, it wasn't working for him because he wasn't getting anyone to chase it. And he wasn't throwing it for strikes. So uh, he hung on to the slider a little more and the fastball a little more. And it was effective for him. The pitch value, uh, 3.6. I think this is kind of like a win probability number here. The added value of his fastball. Fastball runs above average. Uh, he was So he was in positive numbers there. I'm, I'm going to guess here that the positive numbers are good and the negative numbers are bad. 3.6, the most effective his fastball has been all season. He had averaged on the season 2.5. That's with the 3.6 mixed in. So you can imagine how low that average was before that outing. The slider was also positive for him, 1.0. And the curveball was a negative 0.2. So like I said, the fastball and the slider were effective. And then the plate discipline numbers. I knew there'd be one more outlier here. One more thing we could put our finger on and say that's the reason McKenzie was so good last night. And it wasn't the outside the zone swing percentage or the inside or the contact percentages. First pitch strikes. He was up at 73.9% first pitch strikes. And when you're working ahead, you can do a lot of damage. Uh, That is by far the highest he had been with 61, 62% in his very first start of the season against Kansas City. He was at 62%, up to 73.9%. And it has been low in some of these starts. Uh, his start against the White Sox back on May 1st, he was only at 18.2%. Uh, his start against Seattle, his last chance in June, he was at 16.7%. Swinging strike rate, also pretty high, 14.1%. Not the highest of the season. Not the highest. His highest of the season was 193 against the White Sox on May 1st. So that's an odd one where his first pitch strike was one of the worst of the season, but his swinging strike was one of the highest. So yeah. First pitch strike, dominating the strike zone, dominating with his fastball. And his fastball had life, too. His fastball, let's see what the average velocity had been all season. Um, his yearly average was at 91.3 miles per hour on his fastball. Last night, it was at 93.2 and maxed out at 95.6. And I could tell you some of those strikeouts were up there around 95 miles per hour. Um, so that is incredible to see. So that's what McKenzie did different. 
What did Keller do different? I honestly can't find much here. Um, he walked four batters, so that's not great. I mean, kept hits down. I guess that's what you could say, right? He, he only held on to four hits. So that is not his lowest this season. His lowest was three against Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, but he only lasted an inning and a third in that one. So probably one of his best outings as far as that goes uh, on the season. Limited home runs. Didn't give up a home run. He had given up a bunch of home 13 home runs so far on the season. Uh, so that was a good sign for him. Uh, going over to his batted ball, his ground ball percentages is about the same. Uh, his, his contact percentages, soft, medium, hard contact, about the same as it's been all season. Uh, going over to the pitch value and the pitch type, his pitch mix was about the same. 50.9% fastball, 46.5% slider, 2.6% changeup. So a, pretty much a two-pitch pitcher. And that's kind of how it's been all season. And it, it was pretty low on the changeup. He has thrown the changeup a little more than that. The pitch value, the fastball actually had a negative value for him, zero, negative 0. 0.3. The slider was at 2.4, so very effective with the slider. Um, and then the plate discipline numbers. I, there's really no outliers here, nothing with first pitch strike. Uh, he got a little bit more swing strike than he had in his last few outings. Um, so, yeah, so there's no real outlier here for why Keller was so dominant for his seven and two-thirds innings. The only thing I can think is that we just chased a lot of sliders out of the zone. If I go over to the Illustrator and just look at swinging strikes for Brad Keller, there's a couple of sinkers that are off the plate. One high fastball that he got Daniel Johnson to swing through for a strikeout, and then a bunch of sliders and a bunch of sliders at the bottom of the zone. I know that the first two strikeouts, right? He got Cesar Hernandez... Uh, to check his swing, and that was a pitch that was down. And then he got Ahmed Rosario to do the same thing on a pitch in a dirt. He got two swords, you know, as Pitching Ninja would call them, for his first two strikeouts. So that's what he was doing. He was getting us to chase that slider down in the zone. 14 swinging strikes for Brad Keller. And uh, for McKenzie, his swinging strikes were a lot of sliders away and a lot of fastballs up. Um, so that's good to see. He did get him to swing and miss at a couple of curveballs. So 12 swinging strikes, like I said, for McKenzie on the day. All right, so we take this thing. Now, I know what you're waiting for me to talk about. I know, I know, I'm getting to it. So Karinchek, or a Class A comes in in the eighth inning, and after getting a strikeout of Hunter Dozier, Jorge Soler takes a low 100-mile-per-hour cutter that was just in the zone. And it's one of those things, the harder it comes in, the harder it goes out. 107.4 mile per hour home run over the left field wall. And uh, I mean, what are you going to do? It doesn't even look like he really put that hard of a swing on it. It was one of those things where he let the bat do the work and he just got a good swing on a low cutter from uh, from Emmanuel Classe. And uh, Classe does not give up a ton of home runs. That is not his thing. In fact, I'm curious how many home runs has Classe given up on the season? Because it cannot be many. That was his first. That was literally the first home run he had given up all season. We have made it to July 9th before Emmanuel Classe finally gives up a home run. That's incredible. What are you going to do? I mean, after McKenzie pitches so well, 
Class A, you got to imagine Class A and Karen Check are going to shut it down. And he gives up the first home run he's given up all season. Ain't that just the way baseball goes sometimes, right? Just whatever you think is going to happen, the opposite is going to happen. So they tie the game. The Indians need a rally here. So the Indians come up in that eighth inning, and it's Daniel Johnson leading things off. And I know Johnson has been struggling. I know he hadn't gotten a hit all season. And, I mean, he's only been up here for a few at-bats, but he hasn't gotten a hit yet. And I know a lot of you might be ready to give up on Daniel Johnson. He has never gotten a look here. Never gotten a true look. So we'll see if he gets a decent run here in the month of July while Eddie Rosario is out. But anyways, he comes up and he bloops one. Absolutely bloops one to left field. It had an expected batting average of 150. was an 80.1 mile per hour exit velocity. It had an expected batting average of 150 because either outfielder could have caught it. Either outfielder. It looked like center fielder Michael Taylor had an easy line on that ball. But he doesn't call it. Left fielder uh, Andrew Benatendi, he doesn't call it. And what ends up happening is it ends up falling in between them. And then they throw wildly back to first base because Daniel Johnson made a big turn. And then he ends up going to second on the overthrow. So he ends up with two bases, basically on two errors. It goes as his first hit of the season, but it's absolutely two mental errors by the Kansas City Royals let Daniel Johnson on second base. Cesar Hernandez is the next batter up, and he ropes a single into right field. It was hit really hard. Daniel Johnson has to hold at third. I thought because of his speed, Daniel Johnson might be able to score. Hernandez hit that at 101.1 mile per hour exit velocity, so he has to hold at third base, which you're thinking, okay, nobody out. We're up at our best hitters. There's a hundred ways Daniel Johnson can score here. He's going to score. We have this game. Karen Check can come in and save it in the ninth. We have this game. Runners on the corners, nobody out. Ahmed Rosario up, and the infield is in to cut down the run. That's exactly what happens. He chops one to uh, shortstop. They get Daniel Daniel Johnson dancing off of third base. He's stuck. He realizes his only option is to break for home. He breaks for home. I would have loved to have seen him hold the bag a little bit better than that. There's just so many ways for him to score. There's no need for that. There's absolutely no need for that. I don't know if they'd be able to turn a double play or not, but Daniel Johnson gets caught in no man's land, has to break for home. They throw home to Salvador Perez, and he starts running him back to third base. Now, the goal when you're in a rundown like this is to see if you can stay in the rundown long enough for those runners to all move up a base. That's his goal. Because they're not going to give up on him. They're not going to give him a chance to score to try to throw out Cesar Hernandez. They're going to get that guy trying to go home. The guy they have in a pickle. So he does that. Now here's where I think things get screwed up. Third baseman Hunter Dozier was holding the bag, waiting for the throw at third base. When Daniel Johnson starts to retreat to third, Hunter Dozier moves forward. And almost like a, you know, trying to pinch him, trying to squeeze him down. And uh, Salvador Perez doesn't throw it right away. He doesn't want to give up the chance that he can break for home. Wants to take him back to third base as best he can before he makes the out. So when Hunter Dozier steps forward, Daniel Johnson actually runs around him. Daniel Johnson actually gets around him and makes it back to third base safely. The only problem is he did exactly what his job was 
and Cesar Hernandez is able to advance all the way to third base. So Daniel Johnson slides in head first. Cesar Hernandez slides in feet first. They're both occupying the bag at the same time. Now, here's what happens. He puts the tag on, Salvador Perez puts the tag on Daniel Johnson first. He holds the tag on his shoulder. Daniel Johnson thinks, I need to give up this base for Cesar Hernandez, and he pulls his hand off the bag. He also tags Cesar Hernandez. Now, going to the official rule, two runners may not occupy a base, but if, while the ball is alive, two runners are touching the base, the following runner, which would be Cesar Hernandez, shall be out when tagged. Now, we thought, me and my brother were discussing this last night, we thought the moment they occupied the base at the same time, the lead, the the preceding runner is entitled to the base. The lead runner is entitled to the base. So that's Daniel Johnson's base. Cesar Hernandez, if they both just stay on the bag, Cesar Hernandez would be out. Daniel Johnson would be safe. It'd be runners at second and third, one out. But because Daniel Johnson then takes his, it's, it's not, he's not out as soon as they're both on the base. They're, he's out as soon as Salvador Perez tags Cesar Hernandez. Now, the question is, did Daniel Johnson take his hand off the base and get tagged out before Salvador Perez moves the tag to Cesar Hernandez? It did look like that. It did look like he still had the tag on Daniel Johnson. Daniel Johnson's hand comes off the base, and then he moves the tag to Cesar Hernandez, which in that case, Cesar Hernandez was never tagged, would be safe still. Daniel Johnson would be out. And I believe that is what... Terry Francona was arguing here. The statement from Terry Francona, and Mandy Bell had this on Twitter, he said, I have two arguments. One is, I agree, by the rule book, if they're there, the guy coming from seconds out, if they're there at the same time, where they tagged Daniel and they kept the tag on Daniel as they came off the bag. So once he's out, Cesar's okay. So that was the thing. So that was the thing. It's the, Daniel Johnson had removed his hand before the tag went to Cesar Hernandez. So it's an insane double play. Francona is fired up. He had to get thrown out. He had. They had the highlight from the Royals announcer's perspective. And as soon as Francona gets thrown out, they both kind of give each other a little like, yeah, yeah, that had to happen. And it worked. It worked. Bobby Bradley said it. It fired them up. Their manager fighting for them made them want to fight. So the Royals are able to get out of the eighth inning. Karinchek gets into some trouble in the uh, in the ninth inning. Gives up a leadoff double to Benatendi that just somehow makes it over the glove. I really thought Bradley Zimmer had a line on that one, and it, he just missed it. Just made it over his glove. It happens out there. But then he gets Salvador Perez to strike out. Gets Carlos Santana to fly out. Uh, the pinch runner at who came in for Benatendi, that would be Dyson, moves up to third. And then he gets Ryan O'Hearn, I believe with a sword, I believe with a curveball down in the zone. Let's go and check that match out. Match up. Yep, he's going fastball high, curveball down. So he hits him with three fastballs up above the zone, and he fouls off two of them, throws him a curveball away, and then throws him a curveball at the bottom of the zone and uh, strikes him out. Austin Hedges does have to fire it down at first base, but strikes him out, and he is jacked up. He is pumped. 
Cleveland's pumped. And then, like I said, Bobby Bradley, the first batter, the heroics from Bobby Bradley, taking that slider and cranking it out for a home run. So it's an incredible game. It's an absolute, when you want to talk about storylines in a baseball game, my God, what an incredible, incredible game. The Indians only have five hits. The Royals only have four hits. Uh, Nobody has a multi-hit game on the day. MVP for the day. Again, I got to share it. I got, there were two heroes in this game and I absolutely have to share it. Tristan McKenzie making a start like that absolutely deserves MVP for the day. And Bobby Bradley for the ninth inning fireworks absolutely deserves MVP for the day. So it's a split decision. They both take home the trophy. MVP for the day for McKenzie and Bobby Bradley. And yeah, that's all my thoughts on an incredible, insane baseball game. And uh, that is the beautiful thing about baseball. I was sitting with friends last night that were both like, I could not name a single player on this team. They're both Cleveland sports fans. They've, they grew up here. One of them still lives here. One of them moved away. And they're like, I just, you know, it's just not part of my life right now, you know, watching baseball. And they were both sitting there with me as I am absolutely glued, locked into, I'm holding a conversation and locked into this game. Despite what my wife thinks, I am capable of carrying on a conversation and watching the baseball game at the same time. That's the beautiful thing about baseball. And as that game got more exciting into that seventh inning, into that eighth inning, and especially that ninth inning, it pulled them in. It absolutely pulled both of them in. They were like, I forgot how exciting baseball can be. And uh, so that's the thing out there, right? You, you, it's okay that baseball is the pastime because it will pull you into the moments. It will pull you into the big moments. My brother was blowing up my phone. My buddies were into the game. It was a lot of fun last night. All right, coming up today, we got a 6-10 game. It's going to be Miner going against Quantrill. Quantrill, he's, he's, we're going to keep running him out there. He looked okay for a while. I think in his last start, right? He looked okay for a little bit. Uh, Quantrill is going to get another chance to get his first win. And then on Sunday, it's going to be Eli Morgan against TBD for the Royals. And that finishes things up before the All-Star break. So it is a beautiful day in Cleveland. Uh, so it should be a beautiful game tonight down at Progressive Field tomorrow, eh, looking a little iffy. There's some thunderstorms tomorrow, so we'll see what happens with that game tomorrow. But that's all my thoughts. Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland baseball morning. Again, the final from Progressive Field. It's the Indians 2, the Royals 1. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Barris. You can email the show at clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com. Come on, two walk-off wins in a row. You got to have some thoughts. Shoot me an email. Let me know your thoughts on the game. We'll discuss them on the show. Also, I'm hosting this podcast on Anchor, so if you go to anchor.fm forward slash Cleveland Baseball Mornings, you can leave a voicemail for the show. We'll play them back on the air, respond to your thoughts, and we'll have a fun conversation amongst the fans about baseball. So thanks again for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. <laughs>